not a sword or spear to be found among 40,000. The highways were blocked by the enemy. An enemy from within, Jabin was ruling out of Hazor in the land of Canaan, and he was a Canaanite, one of those nations that the Israelites were supposed to have driven out, and yet from within their own land they were being oppressed. And uh, there were no leaders. And Deborah sent to uh, Barak and said, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. There were some things that were kind of silly about that tactical plan to go up onto a mountain and then charge down into the valley against 900 chariots of iron. You all know that story. It's a fun story. They were successful. God was successful, we should say. And Deborah wrote this. The song's attributed to Deborah and Barak, but it's first person Deborah if you read the poem in chapter 5. When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. And the poem, the song ends as if there was a sunrise in Israel. There was some new dawning of something wonderful that allowed them to conquer their enemy, an enemy from within in warfare. Sometime later, maybe a couple of hundred years, maybe as many as 300 years later, David, who had been anointed uh, by God to be king, however, was being oppressed by a king, another king, Saul, who had lost his mind. I don't know. I think we'd say today he was a manic depressive or something. I don't know. I would say he was just a sinful, self-willed, selfish, ambitious uh, man who happened to also be paranoid and chased David around. David, in his running uh, around uh, with his little band of men, Uh, came across a a foolish man whose name either was named fool (laughs) or became the word for fool in Hebrew. I don't know which. But this man's wife came out to meet David, who was headed to do some violent and probably evil things and taking vengeance on this foolish man. And this is what Abigail said. I'm taking up in the middle of her speech, but she's speaking to David. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord, that's David, according to all the good he's spoken concerning you and appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offensive heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. Maybe you've noticed the title of the talk. I'll say more about that in a minute. But do you see how these readings are somewhat relevant to that? Deborah was a leader maker. I'm amused at those kind of feminist point of view who try to bring Deborah up and argue whether she was a judge or not. Listen, she did not intend nor want to lead the Israelites into battle. She had words from God for Barak to go lead those people. And when he took up that job, when leaders lead in Israel and when the people willingly offer themselves, that's the secret. That is the secret of success. That's the secret of leadership in God's kingdom. Willing people and willing leaders. And she told Barak, has not got that. There's a suggestion that he probably already knew that. He actually was from the tribe, Naphtali, up there where the, um, Jabin was reigning. That was his territory, not Deborah's. She was down in the south, right? He knew he had that job to do. And so she pushed him in a good way, a godly way, 
to do what he should do. She describes herself, when I, a military commander in Israel, no, when I, a mother in Israel. And my lesson to some extent will be about spiritual mothers that many of us men need desperately to come and say to us, has not God called you? Or say to us, stop this foolishness that you're engaged in. You're better than that. God has a better plan for you. And later on in your life, you don't want to look back and have this on your record, as Abigail said to David. Do you see this is relevant to my topic this morning? We need everybody pulling together, both as leaders and followers and leader makers. And that's what the talk is about this morning. Thank you for inviting us. It's always uplifting. It's a pleasant thing. I know the prayer mentioned that we maybe were drawn away from our daily activities. Do you understand the value of this over the kind of daily activities that Russ and I have to do, unfortunately, in this fallen world? What a blessing you've given us to be here this week and pay attention and offer a few compliments and so on. But I always say this, and I believe it, that is the real value will be because you've put brain cells on this topic, not because we've been here saying wonderful things. If you've thought harder about what elders do, about how to prepare yourself to be an elder or an elder's wife or an elder follower, then our time has been worthwhile. If you've spent time thinking about how to improve in those areas. This is a roadmap of what we've done, and I do this to some extent for those who weren't with us yesterday. There are a couple of points of review I need to make, so that what I'm going to say will make a little bit more sense. Saturday morning, we looked at the work itself, and you, uh, we, we emphasized, and I don't know if this is a new idea to you or not, and you can forget it as soon as we leave if you want to, but for us, it's useful to think about the work of elders, shepherds, pastors, bishops, Episcopos, whatever word you like to use, in two ways. They overlap, they're related, one is dependent on the other, and that is collective leading of a flock, decisions that affect the entire group, like having crazy guys from Atlanta come talk to you about eldering. That's a collective decision. Sheep shepherding is counseling, coaching, admonishing, challenging, as we've just read, individual sheep. I don't know if I'm allowed to ask questions or not, but how many, raise your hands, think sheep shepherding is the primary work that God's elders have to do? Sheep shepherding, individuals, thank you, so we're getting there. And so that's what we talked about Saturday morning. Um, And I will add to that what Russ said very effectively, and I hope you caught it because he spent a little bit of time on it. And that is, if that's the primary work that shepherds do, sheep shepherding, individual helping, strengthening, protecting, rescuing, healing, feeding, if that's what shepherds do primarily, what is submission to elders primarily? You know, we have a thing. We, we talked about this a little bit last night. We have a thing at Ember Hills where the men who are up here now, let's see, you do still have these baskets, I think, you know, but have you ever heard this thing? The elders have set aside this time. You remember, you heard that? I don't know, a lot of guys say it. I was an elder for quite a while. I don't ever remember setting aside that time to do that. That's supposed to be funny. The point is, our, our, our sense of submission is like nine o'clock, we'll come at nine o'clock, right? If we're supposed to come to an extra service, we'll come to the extra service. You know what I mean? Collective kind of things. Listen, that's not the war we're in. 
That is not the war we're in. And we looked at a couple of passages related to that, uh, at least in my sessions, Acts 20, where Paul was talking to those elders from the church at Ephesus. And Ephesians 4, where the picture of a body, actually a family, because inside that cocoon of love and unity is children who might be tossed to and fro, who need to be protected to grow up to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. Listen, both of those passages are about warfare and threats. You aware of that? Acts 20, the shepherds are warned to watch for those wolves that will come in, not sparing the flock. That's our real enemy. That's our challenge. That's our danger. And in Ephesians, after that discussion of unity in the body, by the way, tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine is part of the threat. But keep reading about the family and roles in the family. Husbands, wives, parents, children, even servants and masters. And he ends by describing the Christian armor. Guess what children grow up to be in God's kingdom? I'm thinking of that dry bones prophecy too. What did they grow? What were they resurrected by the spirit of God to be become? Just grown men? No, an army. To be able to stand against the wiles of the devil is what Paul says in Ephesians 6. We're in a war. And in that warfare, the shepherding of individual sheep to protect them, to grow them up to be soldiers. As in the story of Deborah, or is it Deborah and Barak? I don't know. But, you know, in the south, we say Deborah and Barak. But, right, you see that? That's our warfare. Okay, so that's quite a long review. So yesterday then in the afternoon, we talked about different uh, roles that people play, men developing themselves, women, develop, women developing themselves and helping to develop the men as we've seen. And Abigail, what a great example of letting David know you're about to do something. You're better than this. You have a future. Let's envision that future and prepare for that in the proper way. Uh, and so then this morning, we want to talk a little bit more to the group about the process of being led. And that begins, it seems to me, like Deborah, like Abigail and like Paul, who nurtured Timothy, his true son in the faith, not to mention um, Lois and Eunice, right, who brought him up to be what he needed to be, who challenged him in developing leaders, what is required. I'll talk about that. And then Russ will talk about a more general attitude, which I think is essential. And it's that second half of that verse in Judges chapter five. The people offer themselves willing. There's a kind of humility and a faith in God that allows someone to do that. And that story about those men charging down Mount Tabor, I mean, to me, it's just, that's like a sacrifice, that, right? That's the language of sacrifice. I'm throwing myself headlong into a valley uh, against uh, an army that I will, I have no way of winning except with God's help. So that's what we're asked to do. Serve one another and have that attitude. All right, so let's talk about that. That's preparing to be led in some sense. All right. My question, and I'll spend, and I get to be done in 25 minutes from now. Is that right? 20 till. Somebody just nod. Okay. I'm kind of, listen, don't do this, you know. Uh, 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 Don't be wishy-washy about that. Uh, uh, What can a congregation do to help prepare men help men develop to be prepared to serve effectively as elders. Now, please don't forget the primary work of elders. It's not standing up front and announcing we're going to have a gospel meeting. Oh, that has a role in helping to feed the flock. But remember, what's the primary role of elders? It's, it's, it's helping people survive and grow and avoid sin and so on in their lives. And that's what the submission will be. So that's what we're preparing men to do. 
less. And that's a good story because, you know, you can kind of practice that at whatever age you are. You can practice getting to know people and learning their problems. And if someone's suffering, you can practice sympathizing with them and maybe even think about some advice that might be given. Not with the authority of a shepherd and qualified in the sense of Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, but with the same kind of intent and goal and love. And you can practice that all you want. All everybody can, right? And so you can help prepare yourself and others can help prepare you for that, where it's a little bit harder to prepare to stand up here and say we're having a gospel meeting and make those kind of you know, budget decisions that elders make because of, of the office that they're in. Do you, do you all see that point? So don't be despairing that you can't prepare for that in advance. No, if the primary work is sheep shepherding, then that's something that can be developed. Okay, so what are some, some things a congregation can do? So I have several things, advice just to the congregation. And some of them have to do with our own attitudes and others have to do with directly uh, developing specific men that you might have in mind. First of all, it seemed to me that there needs to be in the church a spirit of humility and submission. And I think there's no, I'll just say there's no limit. It's not infinite, obviously, but there's so many passages that deal with it. uh, I'll show you a couple. And this one, this first one follows the text in 1 Peter 5, which really has to do I call it the adverb passage about how elders are to rule, right? Not lording it over the flock, not, you know, for gain and uh, not uh, of compulsion, but willingly. But the next verse says, likewise, younger people submit yourselves to your elders. And I don't think that means the office of elders. I think it just means to older people because he's saying to younger people, you listen to older people. Isn't that a good attitude to have? Don't you expect mature Christians to be able to tell you things that would be useful in your life? Do we take advantage of that? Titus 2 says older women should teach the younger women things that we sometimes think are natural, but they really require lots of skill to love their husbands, love their children, to be keepers at home, those kinds of things. That's the kind of life advice we ought to expect. And if we're not willing to listen to others or acknowledge that there are some things that, you know, I haven't lived long enough and I don't know some of these answers and I'm collecting opinions from a lot of people that I think are wiser than me and that will make my life better. Is that an attitude that would help an elder in his sheep shepherding role if we all had that attitude? Be submissive to one another. I, I worry... Sometimes, and I, I try not to judge motives, but it seems sometimes that there are churches without elders who are afraid to point them. You know why? Because they would lose some measure of their own authority in calling the shots, right? Have y'all, I see some people nodding. I hope you haven't had a real bad experience about that, but uh, we were at a church recently and it was kind of like, we were saying, boy, if you have elders, the men's meeting, you know, you don't have to suffer through such a terrible, y'all have had that, maybe some of you had that experience. And the answer was, well, our men's meetings are pretty pleasant. You know, there's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it was kind of the attitude, right? But I think there's a fear that there's a loss of authority. Listen, submitting yourselves one to another. And by the way, that same language is found in Ephesians 5 as it leads into the discussions of husbands and wives. And I think there's a sense in which we're submitting our needs, our wants, our benefit for the, and we sacrifice that for others as well. But I think in the kingdom, the, the idea though, that I'm willing to get, forego my rights, even if it's not to my benefit, and in doing that, I'm greater. I'm great in the kingdom when I do that. Boy, what would that mean if we all had that attitude, right? 
For God resists the proud and give grace to the humble. We've got to approach the idea of having spiritual leaders with this kind of submission and humility. I mean, I think of Romans 12. Each man ought not to think more highly of himself than he ought. And he goes on in that very text to talk about the roles people have. Those who lead is, for example, I think down in verse 8, it's a text about roles in the church that are different from one another, but all valuable. And they're in the same uh, in the same uh, book earlier, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but contrary bless, for to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. There's another piece of review I wanted to do right quick, and that is, you remember, if sheep shepherding is the primary role, the most important role, which, by the way, they watch in behalf of our souls in churches, I don't want to disappoint you. As a group, don't go to heaven as a group. There's not a place for this church, you know, a heavenly building up there that you'll all know. It's individuals. And that's what shepherds are about. And who, if you remember from yesterday, who is the biggest concern for shepherds? The weak. Thank you. And that's Bible language, isn't it? Or the children, right? It's those who are injured, those who are scarred, those who are struggling, those who have been drawn away and they're lost and they don't even know they're lost sometimes. They don't know how to get back. That's what elders concern. Do you remember the 90 and 9 story? Remember that? What was the source of joy? The 99 that just stayed there and didn't cause trouble? No, it was the one who repented. That's where the joy was. And that would be where the grief would be. Thinking of Hebrews 13 or 17, that they may do it with joy and not grief. I believe that's talking about that one. That Anyway, so the weak are the ones that we worry about the most. And so, in some ways, I think of Romans, uh, I believe it's the first part of verse 15. We that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Does that mean you may not get your way when the elders makes a decision on behalf of the weakest because that's their priority? About what we study, about who comes to teach, about a program that we do. It's not convenient for me, right? Well, okay. You know what we're worried about the most is the weak. And that's our job. And what a blessing to bear the infirmities of the weak by doing something a little less convenient for us because our shepherds are worried about the weak and the children. I feel like I'm yelling. I'm so sorry. I'm, I, but do you see, see where I'm going with this? Oh, a spirit of humility, honoring others above ourselves. Each of you not looking to his own things, but to things of others. How many verses can you think of that have to do with that? who's greatest in the kingdom, a servant of all. And I think I know of a man who came into the world and suffered absolutely unfairly for the benefit of the entire world. And that's our king. And that's what we need to do. So I think as we think about submitting to elders, imperfect men likely to cause us inconvenience because of whatever they're not thinking clearly about, at least in our view, let's just, let's just rejoice in our opportunity to be inconvenienced a little bit for the good of others. Okay, I've, I've beat that point in the ground. I'm sorry. But... Okay, now begin to look for those Bayraks. They're qualified. They're the ones we need to pick. We need to go and we need to say to them, you know, uh, we'll talk about speaking to them directly, but I see in you a shepherd's character. Russ covered Ezekiel 34 yesterday. And again, uh, as he said, an intimidating passage if you're trying to be a shepherd. How many sheep are lost, and I don't know where they are. And we don't have a system in place to keep track of the attendance, you know, well enough. And maybe I don't have the energy or the love or the diligence to just do what I'm supposed to do and give them a call. 
and say a hard thing to them. I'm looking at him because he brought that up yesterday in the Q&A. You know, put a knife right through our heart, right? And, and all our hearts because we're not all doing what we should do. Who is the shepherd? If you were lost and to some extent still in your right mind, right? Lost meaning that you made a mess of your life. You made wrong decisions. You'd been tempted away and drawn away by Satan or some false teaching. Who would you expect to give you a call? Can you think of somebody, somebody's name? Hadn't seen you in a while. I noticed you looked real discouraged the last time I saw you. I've been hearing some things that are not too good about you, and I just wanted to call you. Is that an easy call to make? is isn't for me. But there's usually people who will do that, and you can kind of almost figure out who they are, find out who those people are. And there's a second question similar, and that is not just who would be likely to call you, who would you want to call you? Because you already know they love you. You already have a trust in them that even though it's hard for them, they're going to do it. And they have my best interest in mind. And even though I'm annoyed and I don't like being called out and I'm ashamed of having all this stuff exposed, that's who I want to call me. That's who I want to call them because they love me. That is, if I was in my right mind, I'd want them to call me. Sometimes we're not even in our right minds in those situations. But think about that. If you were stuck in those situations, who would you want to call you? Those are men to identify. And then, third thing, I think you look for a men who are beginning to meet the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Y'all know that we've been smart aleck about that to say we don't deal with qualifications, we deal with the work. But really, in the end, you've got to think about those. Are, those are authorized by the Holy Spirit as the things that qualify men for this work. We focused... For those of you that don't understand what I just said, we've not focused on the qualifications. You've had good teaching on that, I am confident. We've focused on what elders do, what's their work, and the way in which they do it. And yet, when you go and begin to think about providing leaders in God's local church, you have to look at his will for who those men ought to be. And there are several different ways to look at that. You can make, maybe make the checklist approach. Well, he's married, and maybe his kids have been baptized, if that's what that verse actually means in the use of the word faithful children. Uh, but it could be other things too. It could be that as you look at the man, you're thinking, uh, well, you know, um, I don't think he's successful enough in business. I've noticed he's not very organized. You know what? He's really not very outgoing. And when he gets up in front of the group, I, oh, man, I don't know. You never know. Well, what is he going to say? It? He's going to say it the wrong way. And really, he's not very charismatic. And really, I'm not sure he's that intelligent, really, or innovative, or, uh, you know, he's not really closure-oriented. He's not really customer-focused. You know, we're not going to be able to grow the church with this man. Do y'all hear what I'm talking about here? Do you find any of those things in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1? Innovative, intelligent, proactive, assertive, I'm sorry, I don't find those in that text. Do you? And yet, and yet, if I was hiring a CEO for a company or some kind of guy, business manager, that's the kind of thing I'd want, but that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for men who are gentle, whose integrity is above reproach. I don't know it says that much about how articulate they are. Now, they're familiar with the word. 
and they're able to communicate what they know about the word, maybe in public and private, or maybe just private. I don't really know. Let's don't stretch the qualifications, okay? To find men who are who have been good business leaders or whom we like a lot or something like that. Let's don't do that. But at the same time, let's acknowledge that there are shortfalls. I've seen this man. He seems somewhat harsh. On occasion, he and by the way, there's, a, there's two levels of this. One is what is in the man's heart, and the other is how he comes across to the group. And I think both of those matter, right? Because you really are asking the congregation to submit to this man and to agree that he meets the qualifications. And I think we know of cases. I know you do if you get to know somebody. If you don't know them, then where they seem awful harsh, you know, gruff. And I asked them, they were, Ugh. boy, that, that was an offensive answer. I'm sorry, I'm not going to ask him another question again. But if you get to know the man, very often what's the case is that's just an exterior and they really are soft-hearted and emotional and loving and a bunch of things inside, but you got to get through that. Now, if that's true, or if there's some other issue similar to that, uh, maybe even in their ability to teach, or I don't see that they've been very hospitable, it may be that what that man needs is not so much a development of that character, but to help him show that character to the rest of the church. That's part of the selection process, it seems to me, is that, and by the way, we would uh, take Acts 6 as a kind of a pattern for selecting and appointing men. I've got to make a parenthesis here. In Acts 6, the apostles told the church there in Jerusalem, they had the problem about the widows, Grecian widows being neglected in the daily uh, uh, service ministration. They said, you look out from among yourselves men that in the day to full of the Holy Spirit, they, they listed some qualifications. That was the church's responsibility, not the apostles. Comma, whom we may appoint over the matter. So the authorization, the appointment, was managed by the apostles. If you take Titus, uh, appoint elders in every place, maybe that's what an evangelist can do. But that doesn't mean that the evangelist, in my opinion, nor the elders should be selecting men who meet the qualifications. That is a, a, a duty of the church as a whole. Figure out how to do it. And the reason is, of course, because you're making a kind of a... Um, I hate to use the word contract because it sounds worldly, but I mean, you're basically saying we will submit to you and you will watch out for our souls. And both of those are challenges. But I want to pick the men who meet the qualifications in the assessment of the church itself. So, you know, a man, he actually teaches lots of little private studies. He's always mentoring young men, but I've never seen him teach a Bible class in the auditorium. How about letting that be known? How about letting the church know, no, this man is very wise. If you have a Bible question, give him a, give him a shot or need life advice. Uh, and so in a sense, you are actually advocating for a man by showing his qualities. I don't think he's very kind. He's not loving. Oh, no, you don't know how many people he's helped and you never know about that. And I'm not telling you because he doesn't want me to, but I'm just telling you he's a benevolent person. You see how that would work to help qualify a man that on the surface at least wouldn't necessarily be known by the group. So don't stretch the qualifications to something that God has not asked for. At the same time, look for those weaknesses, either that truly exist, you need to work on your temper, whatever it is, or maybe exist in the perception of the group, which will be selecting the man. Can you imagine that as something you could think about? Now, all of that implies that you're constantly thinking about, well, now who will be our next elder? 
We have a questionnaire when we ask for names of men who, who are qualified. We have another question we asked that, said, that says, who do you think might be qualified in five to 10 years? Write their names down and say some things on your form that would help them know how to develop. And, you know, we started doing that, what, Russ, 15, 16, 17 years ago. And we do that every so often. We like to say we're always selecting, you know, selecting elders. It's just occasionally we fill out a form. But now we have a history of every three years or so watching those men who 15 years ago were put down as, yeah, they might be qualified when their kids grow up or whatever. Now they've come through the pipeline and some of those men were actually just appointed within the last few months. Something to think about. So we're always looking for men, younger men, uh, men who've just moved in. Uh, Look at them from the standpoint of can they be our leaders and what do they need to develop? Uh, And how can I help with that? Okay, next, Uh, increase your knowledge of those men. And there are a couple ways to do that. One is actively develop the relationships, and I call it relationships and fellowships, meaning are they doing something? Join with them. Right? Do you have a class going on? Invite them to the class. Are you counseling someone? Invite them to that. You go to them and say, can you counsel me? I'm about to change jobs. I'm nervous about that. I'm having a hard time managing my time. My kids are reaching an age where I feel like we're kind of getting to a crisis of rebellion. Can you help me with that? And so find ways to get to know the men and co-work with them in something in the kingdom as well. And then ask for opinions and life advice. In the vein of, and by the way, in Titus 2, where it talks about the older women uh, training the younger women, the word likewise is used all through there. Likewise, the younger men, likewise, the older men. I think there's a, there's a common theme in that is that, that the older are helping the younger all the way through. And it just seems to me that you want to help people be good husbands and fathers. That's going to be critical for the qualifications. In fact, do you remember, and I think it's 1 Timothy 3, Paul says, you know what the training ground is for elders in the church? If a man is not able to manage his own household well, how can he take care of or manage the church of God? Remember that passage? That's a clear statement, it seems to me, that being a dad is your training ground for handling the church. By the way, a little footnote on that. It seemed to me that's a further proof that really sheep shepherding is the primary work shepherds do. You ever th- thought about that? It, do you measure a father by whether he's got all his family lined up and in the van exactly on the minute to whenever they go somewhere and they're all dressed perfectly? You know what I mean? Regimented obedience to what his collective authority calls for. Y'all see what I'm getting at? Or, or what's a good, really good father? Really good father. Some, some of us had good fathers. And that's not why I say that. It's not for that reason. It's because they knew me. They cared about me individually. They understood my needs. They counseled me. They shared their heart with me. They allowed me to share my heart with them without kind of threatening me. You know, that's a good father. It's the sheep part of it. It's the individual, uh, individual thing. At Embry Hills, we sometimes think about what's the percent of the church that actually comes back on Sunday nights, you know, or Wednesday nights. You know what I'm talking about? Like Sunday morning assembly and then, well, we got 80% Sunday night. Used to be that way anyway. Oh, man, that's a good number, isn't it? 80% of Sunday morning on Sunday night or Wednesday night, right? Is that the way fathers manage their homes? Supper time, we got 80% of the family here tonight. 
Now, that teenage girl, I don't know where she is, but we got 80%. Some families only get 60%. You know what I mean? That's not a father. A father cares about individuals. And so you work with the men to say, you know what? I, I worry about your treatment of your, of your wife. I worry that your family has emphasized too many worldly things that distract you. I think the things, the decisions you're making are maybe setting wrong parties for the kids. Those are hard things to say, but those are the things that will help those children to be, quote, faithful children or believing children, however that's translated, and also to revere their father for his spiritual mindedness. So there may be advice to be given, difficult things to do. And you all can see that in all of these, there's an implicit relationship that allows you to have these kind of conversations already formed among the men. Through that, which every joint supplies, back to Ephesians 4 from yesterday. Um, And then I think you actually kind of, a little bit like Deborah, has not God called you? (laughs) And maybe it happens 10 or 15 years before that they're actually qualified. But you say, I'm looking at you. I'm thinking about you uh, as an elder one day. What can I do to help? Let that be known. Okay, let's turn our attention to the future elders very briefly. I think it's the case, and I'm thinking about men in their 20s and 30s and maybe older, who who probably never thought about the idea that, oh, wait, I I might be an elder. Well, I'll put that off till I'm in my 50s because, you know, that's a long, that's a later in life thing. Is that the time to to prepare for that? Do you think there are decisions made in to even teenage, but 20s, and like whom to marry, the kind of job to take, how mobile my job will make me be moving from city to city over time, how much control over my time I will have for counseling in the daytime. Do you think decisions made in 20s and 30s would affect that, how that's going to turn out when you're in your 50s? I don't say this as a person who did the right thing, but I'll just tell you, when you're in your 50s, you're kind of locked into some things like what you know how to do, the kind of job you have, and those kind of things, maybe even financial handcuffs that you shouldn't have stuck your arms into, right? But you have them. Can we make decisions early on, 20s and 30s, that will lead us to be, I have some ideas here, stable in the location, right? I'll be there for a while, that allow me to study, give me opportunities to teach and grow in the Word. You know, those kinds of things are important as a, an elder developing. And look at your own weaknesses and, and, and relationships and things and think, how can I improve this? Find a wife or find a husband, whichever way you're looking, uh, that, will, that has that as a common goal. And I actually said declare it. It seemed to me if you have small kids and, and a family that you're trying to lead as a husband, that you might say, you know what, kids, wife... <laughs> This is what leaders do, by the way. They set goals and they work toward it and they remove obstacles and so on. That's, we want to be an elder family one day. What do we need to do? Let's think about that as a goal from the very beginning. Is that, is that realistic? Is that a good thing to do? Now, it may not happen, but we'll work toward that. Um, and then, as I mentioned before, you know, almost anybody can do some of that sheep shepherding stuff. We had a man who is now an elder. He was a deacon at the time. And he had a lot of advantages from the standpoint of his, you know, ethnic background and other things to go find sheep that were getting lost. And he said, you know, I'm not a shepherd, but I'm a sheep dog. <laughs> and he'd go find them and call them and, 
and get them, you know, stirred up and back to the building. And I think, too, that we need to learn to say hard things. Some jobs allow you to do that. You have to tell the employees hard things. I don't know that I like being, you know, what's the word? My conscience seared to say hard things. But there are some hard things you need to learn to say out of love. And I think we're such polite people sometimes. We can see open sin in someone's lives and we're just kind of embarrassed or nervous about calling that out. Listen, that's what a shepherd has to do. Required by God to watch in behalf of their souls. If I see a trend, it may be a job that's been taken. It may be emphasis. It may be debt. It may be personal relationships that are, that are not good. That's a hard thing, but we got to learn to say that. So as a man preparing to be an elder, I think you practice on that and learn, to learn that skill. And then I'll mention this maybe last, uh, but I think there are questions that shepherds need to know answers to that may sometimes take years to fully understand. Um, there's religious errors. I think we've seen uh, a, a kind of a popularity of the, uh, I would call them Catholic type religions, Orthodox or Catholic uh, Roman church. I don't know what the attraction is, but that's coming up. Do you know the... Do you know the Bible arguments uh, about that? Obviously, marriage and divorce and remarriage would come up. Gender issues, women's roles, both in the home and in public service. Those are issues that the world is, uh, you know, uh, attacking us on. They're not easy questions. And there are all kinds of variations of the objections and falseness that comes along. Are you studying that? And it may take a while and a lot of uh, research and reading to kind of come to an opinion on that and figure out how to deal with it. We talked yesterday about mental illness and how that relates, or the use of worldly counselors. How would that? I think there's some Bible principles that need to be established, and that needs to be worked on over time. So those are some things as well. That's the end of my talk, and so look, it's, I'm only three minutes over. That's really good for me. I, uh, I hope I haven't said it too fast. I'll be glad to clarify all the mistakes I made after services if you if you didn't understand it or think that maybe I've said something not in keeping with God's word. And I have been given the authority. This is just, I feel powerful here. We're dismissed to classes. Thank you very much.